First on film and entertainment, the countdown to the Oscars has well and truly begun, and we have all the Academy Award winners with us today. I'm talking about as human beings, Peter Krause, wow, Dave Griffiths, Jackie Hamilton, and Greg King. The collegiate approach that we have to this. Everybody agrees with me. Is that right, Peter? Uh, no. <laughs> Jackie? Yes, good morning. Oh, okay, good. All right, that was about as exciting as watching paint dry. Mind you, you do a lot of painting at home, Jackie. Is that exciting? Is it as exciting as watching tomatoes grow? Is this the Sunday morning painting program, Alex? It is. Well, hang on, hang on. Your your, your pursuits, your your lifetime pursuits, you, I love you growing tomatoes. It's just that you don't give me too many of them, do you? And you, you try different varieties. I heard, actually, I heard only I yesterday. Them to my friends. Pardon me? I do give them to my friends. <laughs> yes, very good. I heard yesterday that we are going to import three. This is very exciting. It, it got everything to do with movies. We're going to import three different varieties of avocado, new avocados from New Zealand. Now, I mean, I'm curious. When when a new variety of anything comes about, I presume you're just splicing different bits and pieces of gardening. Is that right? That's how much I know about gardening, Jackie. You can You can inform me. Go on. Oh, so I presume so. Look, I'm not an expert, but I, something along those lines. But I can I can bet that it will take five minutes, and we'll call, we'll be calling them Australian avocados. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, yeah, well, it's just it's another state, isn't it? It's like another state. No, I'm not not insulting the the New Zealanders. I, I love New Zealand. Uh, I mean, it, it's kind of interesting because if we relate this to movies, how often do you get different genres that are spliced with one another, and uh, they they sort of create a movie? I I, I mean, I'm. What, what's that expression, how many original ideas are there? You know, and, and we're just regurgitating things that have gone before. We've, uh, all of us have complained about the fact that the superhero movies are just regurgitated and, and it's becoming you know, quite um, difficult to see, see one of these and really enjoy it. Greg, you, you're one of those who've, who've said that to, to us over the distance. I mean, wh where is originality when it comes to superhero movies? Probably not much. When was the uh, quite quite seriously? If we're we're on this topic, when was any of us? When was the last truly original superhero movie? Can you can you actually name a movie, Dave? Off the top, um, probably the Batman because that went right back to the original nineteen um, thirties detective comics. Batman that would probably be the most original that I've seen, but. I think we're seeing more of the original ones now uh, on in the TV series, um, but even some of those are rehashes. But Iron Man, when that came out, that that really to me set a benchmark. I'm not sure about you know storyline and so forth, but I thought that was a terrific. That, that's what I can remember. Uh, what about you, Peter? Anything off the top? Absolutely, Flash Gordon, going back to the 1930s, the original series. Wow, um, that is still memorable. Gee whiz, okay. Um, well, you, you are an old old age pensioner, so yeah, I can understand. You know, you're at, well, you're about thirty five at that stage, weren't you, Pete? And you, you're still. Uh, I was there. I was there at the launch. But <laughs> <laughs> you you were there when Electric Light was first turned on. I know. I know. Uh, we love you for it, Greg. Thank um, you. Any any further thoughts in terms of when the last original m movie that you saw, which which had superheroes in it? No. Oh. God, can't remember. I mean, probably when um, Richard Donner made the first Superman movie and it looked like a man could fly, that sort of struck out then, mm -hmm. but it's not original. But 
Um, the way they did it was certainly eye-opening, but, yeah, no, nothing much originally in superhero movies because we know them from the comics and everything. Yeah, I mean, it's... It, TV it, series of Batman and all those things we grew up with. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, for some reason Jackie's left us. Uh, I'm not sure what has happened here, but... Um, I think she's uh, gone to tend tomatoes. I reckon she has gone to tend her tomatoes. Uh, I'm, tomatoes for the week, you know. I'm, I'm rather concerned. I'm not sure how we bring her back here. Uh, she, she's I, I mean, Jackie, you didn't like this conversation. Is that that's what this was all about? Suddenly... I'm sorry, I had a little had a little technical hitch there. Oh, very good. I, I, I was about to say, you know, gee, I, I I've insulted your tomatoes, and uh, you, you've gone off in a half. <laughs> uh, can you can you think about uh, the, the same topic? I, I mean, you're not a you're not a great superhero fan, are you? I, I, I like a good uh, Iron Man yeah. going years ago had me so excited. I thought I'll be up for this, and I think I've been disappointed with them ever since. But is it a little bit left of centre to say that everything, everywhere, all at once was a superhero film? She was a superhero. Yeah, yeah. Is that what you're talking right. about, or not really? Well, uh, not really. But I mean, I, no, I've yeah, gone I mean, off on a tangent. But I, no, but, but she but was. No, that's a reasonable, reasonable thought process. I, uh, it, it, I mean, and it was definitely original. That's for sure. I'm, I'm also thinking that we're at a stage now where there's a lot of subgenres, right? So, in other words, uh, and we, we can't talk about it because I know there's an embargo. But there's a movie coming out with Woody Harrelson, and if you like, you know, it's it's a comedy, but it's also you know got a children's focus and and so on and so forth. So there's there's subgenres as well. Um, I mean, I'm not sure whether you'd call it a subgenre or not, but uh, you, you can talk about war movies, and then underneath that, you've got uh, Holocaust films, which are, to be honest, probably the highest standard of any movie. Uh, if you think about the number of great Holocaust films and and the stories, I mean, there are so many stories that are yet to be told. But the, the, I mean, I think it gets down to that level of detail. You know, we'll probably get to sub subgenres. And I mean, if horror, Dave, you're a big horror fan. Um, I mean, there must be lots of subgenres by now. You know, you don't just get a straight horror movie. You get the schlock horror, and and I presume you could name a few others. Oh yeah, there's uh, there's found footage, there's slashes, um, yeah. horror comedy, um, which I actually think is one of the hardest genres to write because they're so difficult to to do. But I kind of and, and even there's uh, a superhero horror. A few years ago, we had Brightburn, which was basically a, yes, yeah. There was a that was a film that basically looked at what would have happened if Clark Kent had gone evil um, to the point oh. where DC tried to sue the the makers of the film because it was so um, close to the Clark Kent story, except the kid went evil instead of good. Um, but yeah, like you get ones like that that come along that are that are really original. But even with Champions, can we call that an original film? Because there's been two different versions of it made overseas already. Uh, well, hang on. Uh, two. I knew the Spanish one, but w what is there? Is there another one as well? There was a telly movie made in another country as well. Ah, okay. Well, I mean, I, I suppose that's the hardest thing. You know, here we are. All of us are writers, and all of us are, are talkers about film and uh, arts and entertainment. Originality, boy, oh boy. Dave, you write scripts to to not pinch ideas, to come up with your own thoughts, to to make the whole thing you know, sort of spew forth from one's mind without referring to others that have been, that is really hard, isn't it? Very hard. It is. And sometimes freaky things happen. Um, going back probably about 10, 15 years ago now, a friend and I had an idea about what would happen if Dawson's Creek was a musical. So we started to write about 
these teenage kids in high school and it was a musical and then all of a sudden glee arrived and it was like wow this is our exact idea um our screenplay our original pilot was so close to the pilot of glee that you would have sworn that they'd seen ours somehow we knew they hadn't so you get little things like that all the time where it's like you 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 work on an idea and you spend about a year on it and then someone else brings out the exact same idea the, the other aspect that strikes me is and a number of big name music artists have been sued for supposedly taking, stealing, call it what you will, ideas from other artists and obviously making a go of it and then, you know, lesser knowns will, will potentially sue them. Now, it's it's very difficult and I suppose all of us listen to music and then something looks or sounds the same as or similar to something else. I mean, if if you are somebody who's involved in the music industry, it's it must be incredibly hard not to be influenced by things around you. So, you know, when, when are you allowed to sue? When are you not allowed to sue? When are you actually uh, pilfering somebody else's idea, Dave? Yeah, well, they had that funny scene in Studio 666 where Dave Grohl was writing new, and I say new in adverted commas, uh, riffs, and every time he wrote one, it was a former Foo Fighters song, and all of his bandmates would be like, oh, Dave, we've already done this one. So, yeah, that happens. And, of course, Men at Work, very, very famously over the last few years, got taken to court over one of the um, the flute piece um, in one of their songs. And their, the person who wrote it said, you know what, I must have heard that other song and it got stuck in my head and then I put it into our song by accident. What happened there? Because I, I, did, did they have to pay money or not? Yeah, they did. Basically, they I don't think they get any royalties anymore for... Um, uh, their Down Under song. I think now that all goes to the original creator of um, the Kookaburra song. So, Achoo. yeah. Well, that's all right. Um, as long as we can say that the five of us are, are genuine, fair income originals. That's what we're going to say anyway amongst the, what, eight billion people on the planet. Let's talk about Empire of Light as the first movie on J-Air, 88FM, MA-rated 115 minutes, set in the English coastal town of Margate. Any of you have visited Margate or not? I'm, I'm familiar with it, but I haven't seen it. No? Okay. It's the turbulent early 1980s, I think 80 and 81, and, and it's this sensitive drama romance starring Olivia Coleman and she's very good. Uh, she plays Hillary, manager of the local cinema, which is called The Empire, and that's situated across from the beach. She gets along really well with her fellow workers who include the projectionist Norman, played by Toby Jones, and a rather diplomatic Neil, Tom Brook, who sees all. And the latest employee is a 20-something black man, and uh, I mentioned black man for a reason. His name is Stephen, played by I think it's it, it, it's uh, it's Michael Ward, but it's spelt a bit differently. But that's I believe his his uh, the actor's name who who lives with his mother Delia Tanya Moody, who's a nurse, and he has been subjected to racist taunts all his life. And uh, obviously, that's an important part of this uh, movie. In spite of an early flare-up, though, Hillary and Michael hit it off, or Stephen, rather, hit it off really, really well. She is impressed by his gentle and caring nature. His ambition is to study architecture, but those plans have hit a roadblock, hence why he's taken up employment at the cinema. Hillary struggles to rid herself of the seedy advances of her boss, played by Donald Ellis. This is a, a very different role for Colin Firth, I might say. 
and and he's the one who runs the Empire Cinema. She also faces mental health issues, which have seen her hospitalised. And being off her meds, as she is, results in severe mood swings, the manifestations of which are pivot points in this movie Empire of Light. So, I mean, quite illuminating. It's an insightful work from the writer and director Sam Mendes, who did movies like 1917, Slow Burn, several layers and interconnecting threads. I found it poignant. I, I, it was quite distressing. At times it was delightful. And as I mentioned, I thought Coleman was ebullient. She was withdrawn. She was aggressive. Very impressive performance as Hillary. And Ward as well uh, displays nuance as Stephen, uh, who carries on his shoulders the weight of being a coloured man. I, I thought that Toby Jones came into his own as the movie progressed with Norman showcasing his knowledge of and passion for the projected image. You, you've got to say that cinema itself, uh, a love thereof is a big part of the joy in this production, and Mendes has made sure of that with his considered shot selection. So I, I really enjoyed Empire of Light. I, I know that not everybody has sort of been as as uh, enamoured as I have. What did you think of it, Jackie? Uh, Empire of Light. Um, I Sorry, are, we, really... are we on the same page here? Yes. Empire. Yes. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, yes, I wrote the wrong thing down. Um, Empire of Light, It's a, I it really connected with this film. I thought Hillary was a great character. I really liked her story, the story of her life. Difficult, uh, but very genuine. And I liked the all of the secondary characters, and there were quite a few, although not so many that you wouldn't actually get to know most of them quite well. They all had an interesting role to play. Um, her interest in Stephen, um, not just perhaps, as you mentioned, his gentle nature, but very much the physical, um, mm. I thought that was, you know, in fact, stronger in many ways because there were, you know, that was obviously um, something she was craving. Um, the I loved the era. The the it was an interesting era to set it in the night nineteen eighty, uh, just crossing over from New Year into nineteen eighty one because that gave us gave gave some spark to a part of the storyline with the riots, mm. and um, I particularly liked the setting. You mentioned Margate. I haven't been to Margate, but it's just such a classic English setting, the coastal area, and that beautiful Art Deco cinema. So uh, exquisite piece of architecture and um, the interior furnishings. And it, it was it stunning. Really... It reminded me of the Rivoli, to be honest. I think the Rivoli is just magnificent here in Melbourne. Definitely, definitely. Uh, well, that's the same era. That's what yes. it's all about. Yeah. And, yeah. and 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 there's even a whole lot of what we see in a lot of um, Art Deco buildings in New York, you know, that, that timber panelling and the mirrored pillars and that rippled glass. I, and a lot of the film focused on that. Uh, as in the scenery and the backdrop, and well, little I mean, areas I mean, like the foyer and the and the and the um, the cafe room, or sorry, the tea room that the staff had, beautiful little genuine bits of reality uh, that you know could be memorable for for us, but also gave the story um, a lot of interest. Well, climbing up to the top of you know and, and seeing the. Uh, abandoned areas of the cinema as well. That also reminded me, you know, I mean, you're somebody who loves architecture and I know you've you've sort of taken an interest in Melbourne in that regard as well and, and touring. I, I heard during the week as well 
that somebody said that Melbourne's architecture is is quite special. Do you think it is? Or I mean, I, I'm a big fan of British architecture. So, I mean, we obviously it, know quite a bit. Melbourne, Melbourne definitely is, and for one reason, and I, I think that we go back to the name Norm Gallagher and the BLF, if you mm. remember. Mm. Oh, no, I don't remember. I think my parents told me about it. <laughs> oh, yes, the BLF, when they um, they put bans on uh, building destruction around Melbourne, Wheel and the Wrecker, uh, and Melbourne was just being, Melbourne's um, old, old places were just being demolished willy-nilly as we drove forward for it to become a modern city yeah. without recognising there was a, a, a lot to value. Sorry, export in that documentary, The Lost City of Melbourne. Absolutely, that Lido ran for many, many weeks, if not months, earlier uh, uh, to, from the end of last year into this year. Oh, and that, that yeah. talked a lot about this. Um, uh, the, it was very controversial at the time, of course, but um, we look back now and we say other cities went through and demolished all their old buildings and became modern, and, it, and um, we've managed to retain the, the blend, the mix. Mm. It's in a sidebar story. You talk about Norm Gallagher. As a young journo, young TV journo, I was sent by, and I think this was a lark, I was sent to interview Norm Gallagher, who could be a bit frosty at times, apparently, um, to literally go into a pub with his mates and uh, stick, a, stick a TV camera in his face. That was one of my first jobs. <laughs> I, I, the, 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 these guys were jokesters. I, I've given you the other story about the fact that because I'm, I'm such a man mountain, all of, uh, what, 164 centimetres of me, um, that I, I was given the job of interviewing the tallest man in football and they stuck me on a box. So they're, they're just some of the TV larks. Well, that Alex, Alex, I can um, kind of match you for that because I yeah. had a, um, I was a, a cub reporter and uh, was sent out. I think we went by helicopter, actually, mm -hmm. or uh, light plane, whatever. Anyway, we flew out to Nor when it was discovered that Norm Gallagher had a beach house uh -huh. that was being built with right. union funds um, yeah. um, and and um, workers and all that. So that was a that was a page one story at the time. Wow. And and I know we're sidebarring on sidebars, but uh, I think I've told you the story about my hairiest moment in journalism. Have I not, Jackie? No? Um, no, apart from meeting Norm Gallagher in a... No, 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 no. Um, it was um, because, again, it was sort of quite common that we took light planes or, or helicopters. That was great. That was an interesting part of the job. But um, I can't recall where I was going, but I was in a light plane and uh, I was next to the pilot and suddenly, as we were just flying over uh, parts of Victoria, um, the door next to me flew open. I was shiting myself, shall I say, and, and the plane dropped, right? So, and I'm thinking, uh-huh, what do I do in a circumstance like this? And we immediately looked for a, a, a part, some field somewhere to land. So, yeah, it, um, that wasn't my, th my greatest moment, shall we say. Did but you live? No, no, no. It's it's AI now. This program is for you. <laughs> exactly. Now, I was going to say, in terms of the production design of Empire of Light, I've got a lot of plaudits to be given to Mark Tildersley, uh, Tildersley who's the production designer. I, I thought that the attention to period detail was terrific. And the cinematography, Roger Deakins, I, he and Mendes worked together very well. I think this is their fifth film together. I mean, the craftsmanship is really evocative, bringing out the very finest 
in in the um, seaside town of Margate. So yeah, I mean, um, I'm pleased you enjoyed it. What what about you, Peter? Uh, did you enjoy Empire of Light as much as Jackie and I? Uh, I certainly did. Uh, I should mention Gus Berger's film, The Lost City of Melbourne, is still playing at uh, a few cinemas around Melbourne. Oh, thank you. The Nova, and the Nova Cinema has celebrated, I think, six-month anniversary of uh, playing the film. So it's incredible that uh, it's still going. And, yes. Anyway, uh, Empire of Life. Uh, Sam Mendes has not written many of his films, but uh, he definitely wanted to write this one. Um, and he has sort of used as a template um, some of his earlier films, uh, which has melancholy aspects attached to it, Road to Perdition, American Beauty being good examples. This one is a, a, a multi-story uh, sort of film um, that is centred around a cinema. And what is so interesting about this film is the way he interweaves a number of issues, uh, the racial divide, uh, Thatcherite Britain, um, mental illness and bipolar disorder, um, and the power of film and uh, the life of projectionists um, who live uh, as part of the cinema, so to speak. He's interwoven uh, a lot of those aspects into the story. Mikhail Ward uh, is very good as the uh, uh, as the black actor, uh, black um, um, uh, employee, who uh, brings that race issue to the fore, uh, especially in the depiction also of his mother. Um, it's interesting too the uh, the representation of mental illness. Um, Olivia Coleman's uh, character, who has bipolar disorder, uh, she was obviously one of the early people who received lithium. Lithium was relatively yes. new in the 1980s. And, and regulating that and the impact on some dosages uh, having um, quite a significant impact on people so that they stopped taking the lithium uh, is an example of how she tried to deal with that uh, and, and tried to have a life, um, which is a, an essential part of the story. There is so much to admire in this film. Yes, it is quite melancholy in many respects, but it also has something important to say about the early 1980s, and Sam Mendes has done a great job. It's interesting how they refurbished an old building uh, as a cinema um, to uh, uh, and Margate to uh, make the film uh, to begin with. And, uh, uh, and yeah, look, overall, I was very impressed by the film. It had a lot to say and I really enjoyed it. Uh, do you understand why it, it's sort of basically been marked down? by? So I, I, I looked at this and I'm thinking, what, what is there to mark down in a film that really is extremely thoughtful and, and thought-provoking? I think some of the problems are with some reviewers may be that the film tries to deal with too many issues, um, they might think, and that they don't necessarily all fit together well in a in this two-hour film. I disagree. I, yeah, I think it works well, and 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 especially the homage to cinema, which uh, we've oh. seen in so many other films, uh, yeah. like Babylon and Cinema Paradiso, and so on. Toby Jones's character, a lovely character. Yeah, no, it's a very good film. It's interesting. You know who I was thinking of, and and some of us will remember him. Brian, the projectionist, who. <laughs> I, oh, Brian! This oh, yes. lovely, yes. lovely yes. man. And you know, I, he. I used to love going to. Uh, was it uh, UIP in in West Melbourne? And uh, he always greeted you. I, you, I get, actually went to the projection room a few times, and it, it really it, it was a, it was a it was a terrific fellow. I, I've got no idea what, what what's become of him and, and where he is now. 
Does anybody know? I remember I him saying he was retiring, but I couldn't remember where he was well, going. I, I, my understanding is that he actually uh, went, I'm not sure whether he's still part of it, but he, he owned Backlot, uh, you know, before it moved. I'm not sure whether he still owns part of Backlot, but that was my understanding. But anyway. Um, we, we I think did, according to the cinema pioneers, I think he died uh, a couple of years ago. Did he? Oh. Wow, gee. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, let's let's go to Greg uh, with this. Are you? I mean, so far we've all agreed it's a very very fine film, and and I I, I like the fact that somebody like Sam Mendes can take all these threads, put them together, and really make us think. And and that's that's part of the strength of this movie. What did you think? Um, I'm not quite probably quite as enamoured as you two. Um, I, I thought for um, Love Letters to the Cinema, it was a little bit tepid for me. Um, I expected something more along the lines of Cinema Paradiso here. Um, some of the elements didn't quite gel together for me. Um, I didn't quite get the connection between you know, Mikhail um, Ward character and Olivia Coleman's Hillary there. I didn't quite get as emotionally engaged in their um narrative arc there, but I did like the character of Norman, the projectionist played by Toby Jones there, whose passion for cinema is obvious there. Um, some of the scenes set in the projection room reveal that nostalgia for the lost days of the cinema where the projectionist actually loaded the film in and mm. uh, watched it and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the weight, Greg, the weight of the canisters as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I, all that kind of stuff sort of you don't get anymore now where it's all sort of digital. Um and you've got to wait for the kid behind the projection box to press the button sometimes. Um, but the film I read was loosely inspired by Mendy's own um, memories of that era, and especially um, his char- the character of Hillary here is loosely inspired by his own mother. I agree that it's beautifully shot by Roger Jenkins here. The production design for the cinema, beautiful there. Um, and I thought Coleman's performance actually was really good. Um, she gives you a com- complex and narr- dramatic narrative arc. Um, but some of that stuff about the um, early 80s there didn't quite gel as much for me. I, I thought it was much more effective in films like um, Billy Elliot and that there. Um, yeah, it's an interesting film, but I'm... So, so, would, you, so would you would you say what, what Peter was, was mentioning, that you think he, he tackled too much? Is that what you're, you're saying? I think, I think he tried to tackle too much, and some of it worked a lot better than other elements oh, of it, that's yeah. That's interesting. Uh, Dave, what about you? I'm on the side where I really enjoyed the film. I, I think one of the reasons why it's been marked down is because a lot of of the younger audience now expects Sam Mendes' films to be like 1917 or Spectre or Skyfall. They forget that this is the, the director who gave us Revolutionary Road and American Beauty. Yes. Uh, to me, that this film goes back towards those kinds of films, films that actually had something to say and a are so well written. I, I really enjoyed this film. I thought that perhaps he did try to tackle too many topics, but I actually thought that it worked um, in a sense. I, I'm not sure, I don't want to do a spoiler here, but I thought one scene probably should have been made a bit smaller because um, it didn't really fit in with the rest of the film. But I, I loved this film. I thought it was a great um, love letter to cinema. Um, growing up, going to cinemas like the the Rivoli and the Astar, it, it reminded me of my own film journey. I thought it was a really, really beautiful film, and I love the performance of Olivia Coleman. Once again, she's an absolute standout in this film. Absolutely. Score out of 10 from you for Empire of Light. Um, I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10. Peter? 
Eight out of ten from me. Greg King. I'll give it six out of ten. I thought that um, scene where they had the supposed premiere of Chariots of Fire was a bit of an understated affair, which sort of didn't quite ring true for me. I thought it would have been much more spectacular. But, yeah, six out of ten for me. Mm, okay. Jackie. Right, seven and a half. Mm, and eight out of ten for mine. So generally speaking, a film certainly worth considering. Jair, 88FM, first on film and entertainment and the cavalcade of champions. After Sun, let's talk about that. M-rated, 101 minutes, sensitive, heartfelt, naturalistic film by a debut writer and director called Charlotte Wells. A beautifully reflective piece concerning an 11-year-old girl called Sophie, played by Frankie Corio, and the last holidays that she took with her father Callum, played by Paul Mescal. Uh, about 20 years older than him, and, and that was taken, uh, 20 years older than her, rather, uh, two decades uh, ago. So this was a, a holiday they took way back when. And the pair travels from Scotland to a fading resort in Turkey. They swim, they sunbathe, they play pool, they go to a Turkish bath, they go to a mud bath, they read, they listen to an old crooner, they attend a karaoke night, they watch endless paragliders, Overhead, of course, and more. So they just do what people do on holidays. Callum, who practices Tai Chi, is separated from Sophie's mum, but appears to have a good relationship with her, uh, at least you, what you can tell over the telephone. Sophie, played as an adult in a few scenes by Celia Ralston Hall, reflects on the shared joy and private melancholy of that final hurrah, that holiday that she took with her father. Memories, real and imagined, fill the gaps between that which is captured on home video, and there's a lot of home video in this movie, as Sophie tries to reconcile the father that she knew, who was loving and idealistic, with the man that she did not know. And as a world of adolescence creeps into focus, beyond her eye, Callum struggles under the weight of life outside fatherhood. Although we, we aren't told what that is, we just see him breaking down on a number of occasions and then going to excess on other occasions. Now, this won the French Touch Jury Prize at Cannes, the Cannes Critics Week in 2022. Uh, I, I did not find it hard to see why. Semi-autobiographical work, I thought the writing by Charlotte Wells was superb. And um, just a personal note, Charlotte Wells' parents were quite young when she was born and growing up in uh, up uh, her father would often be mistaken for her brother although he never seemed to mind, and that, that's also captured in the film. So uh, in creating the work, Wells reminisced about her own adolescence, about her parents and her dad in particular, and, and that process of reflection while writing lent a uh, retrospective gaze to the script. I, I thought the performances were, were quite extraordinary and, and almost incomprehensible to me that Frankie Carrillo had never acted before. I, I thought she was breathtaking, so expressive, so real as Sophie. And uh, I thought that Paul Maskell also brought nuance to his representation of a man who clearly has his issues. And for him, for, for Callum, the, the character, vitally important that Sophie knows he's there for her now and in the future. And Maskell is nominated for Best Actor Oscar. So I thought Carayo should also have been uh, in, in her category. So that, that was my thought. Greg King, what did you think of After Sun? Um, this is a sort of sensitive piece, as you said, Alex, slow burn, um, more of a mood piece there where sometimes you're not exactly sure what's 
what's happened to um in the relate during this holiday that um has triggered these memories for Sophie there. Um, but it's well shot, I thought, you know, the atmospheric cinematography. Also, the um, sort of colour palette that they use there is quite nostalgic there. <coughs> I agree that the performances of the two leads were quite um, strong, um, very subtle and nuanced. Um, and the look of Turkey there um, as well, a shot of location there, sort of gives it another ambience as well. Um, it's one of those films I think you've got to go back a second time just to appreciate and get some of those nuances um, clear in your head. Mm, yeah, probably. Uh, Jackie, what did you think? Um, go oh. back and see it the second time. I value my three hours of life more than that when you take into account driving there and back. Um, After Sun just did nothing for me. I'm so sorry. I saw all the rave reviews. I was wow. so looking forward to it. I just I didn't get it for me. I, it wasn't even pretty to look at. Nothing happened. And it was um, jerky cam, airy-fairy, arty-farty, and I kept waiting for something of significance to actually happen or anything to actually happen. Hang on, this is a woman who watches grass grow. What are we talking about? I mean, it, it, that, that's the point of the movie. It, it was naturalistic. It was realistic. Did, did you not feel that? Well, it wasn't naturalistic and realistic. It was, it was, a, it was jerky cam kids' own home video footage interspersed with grainy film of nothing happening um, and I did, just didn't, it did nothing for me. No, look, I, I, I love your contrary views, Jackie. I think I, that's why you're invaluable. In I'll tell, tell you where it completely lost me and yeah. I think it was probably about 20 or 20 minutes in or half an hour in. God, it could have been three quarters of the way through. Who knows? Mm. Um because there was no real narrative, so it was hard to kind of pinpoint where anything happened because nothing happened. But it lost me at the slow pan over a skirting board while we could hear Callum brushing his teeth in the background. Right. Okay. Well, and I'm like, why? Why are they? What is the significance of this? There was none. Well, it didn't. You, you know, I mean, home video, you know, jerky cam, as you call it. I mean, that's, you know, people capture all sorts of things. In, Is in- there anything more boring than watching other people's jerky cam home videos? That's my point, Alex. Mm. Well, Peter, who's the other contrary member of this team, um, I reckon you're going to like this. Go on, prove me wrong. I reckon <laughs> you will have enjoyed this movie. Go for it. Uh, I did enjoy this movie. I I, I think it was actually qu- quite a superb representation of fragmentary memories of uh, a, a woman reflecting back on her childhood experiences, um, uh, either imagined or real, uh, with her father. And it's also interesting to note that apart from the the filmmaking style, which uh, um, Charlotte Wells won the BAFTA for Best Debut Feature, um, quite rightly, because it was Mm. such a superb film, um, is the issue of mental illness, which uh, seems to crop up in this film as well as Empire of Light. And we get a lot of hints in the film that um, the girl's father uh, is not well. Uh, We see him crying in one stage. We see him in uh, difficult circumstances very briefly. Um, If we put all of those aspects together, it is also that uh, fragmentary notion of having a parent who uh, is uh, 
is perhaps both positive and effusive at some stages, but also quite disturbed and unhappy at other stages. So I think what Charlotte Wells has done is is beautifully represent that in this film by by using the, the that issue of fragmentary memories of handheld camera of um, rather interesting editing. Uh, which works to the film's favour. And the music uh, of the period was used mm. very effectively as well. This is a, a really superb production. I first saw this at the British Film Festival last year and it blew me away as certainly the best film of uh, last year's festival. And uh, I'm so glad it's getting a release. It is an excellent film. Yeah, well, there, there really is joy and wonder in that relationship between father and daughter, which is exactly what Wells wanted to capture. And um, it was really important for Callum, the character, to enunciate that Sophie should feel comfortable in the knowledge she can talk with him about anything. And a lot of this is left unsaid. That's the nature of this film. It's up to us, the audience, to interpret. I mean, it's not clear until late in the piece of the time frame between the events captured and, and where Sophie's at in the present day. Having said that, that device used by Charlotte Wells, I thought worked perfectly. What did you think, Dave? I, I love this film. I thought it was such an amazing screenplay. And I'm glad Peter mentioned the soundtrack as well because I collect soundtracks. And one of the things I notice quite often with filmmakers with soundtracks is they'll have every character in the movie listening to the same genre of music. Well, my wife and I don't even listen to the same genres of music. Um, and the, the soundtrack here worked so well because they had pop songs being listened to by Sophie, whereas Callum was listening to more alternative songs. And also, thankfully, Charlotte Wells is a smart enough filmmaker to know that if you're a real fan of a band, you don't just listen to their hit singles. So the soundtrack here, she's really dug deep and tried to imagine what kind of music her characters would listen to. And I think that just goes along with the naturalistic feel of this film. I think it's actually kind of criminal that Frankie Carrillo also didn't get an Oscar nomination because yes. I thought she was amazing in this film. Um, like you said, this is her first film and her and Paul Mescal come together as a duo in this film as far as I'm concerned. So I think this is a, a beautiful film. It's a coming of age film. It's a film that makes the, the audience think a little bit, but I thought it was and is one of the best films of this year. Isn't it interesting because that's what I was going to finish with. I reckon it's one of the films of the year, genuine piece of movie magic. Yeah, it's for selective tastes. I get all of that. It's slow moving, but it's authentic. It's emotionally resonant. Jackie, uh, I'm just wondering, having heard our effusive praise of this particular movie, uh, would you consider going to see it again? Because, uh, you know, there's a lot there that uh, obviously didn't move you the first time. No, Alex, because I already had read of the film and the praises and I waited for it and I was watching for it as I was in the cinema looking at the film. Mm. I was searching for this in the film and so it just did not connect with me, uh, yeah, not at all. Fair enough. Perhaps your expectations were sort of set too high. I don't know. It's, uh, it's Well, a- maybe, but... but I like there was nothing in it for me really. It mm. was it was a mood piece, but uh, I think Greg called it a slow burn. But I couldn't call it a slow burn because there was actually no fire in it anywhere. So well, After Sun is M rated, runs for 101 minutes, and let's go from tallest to shortest. The rest of us are are going to sort of think highly of it. Uh, so, Dave, a mark out of ten. Uh nine. Mm-hmm. Peter, definite nine out of ten from me. 
nine out of ten from me as well. Greg, you'll be a bit lower. Uh, yeah, probably about six or out of me. Um, I'm still scratching my head over that final final scene there, trying to work out what that all meant. That was her last memory of him. Yes. Mm. Yeah, I got that, but he walks through the door and all these cameras flash. I just wondering what that that was all about. Oh, no idea. Yeah. See. I know, but I'll tell you off air, Greg. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, do you know, do you, Dave? So you see, why why would you only know this because you have to go and research that? Did you know yourself or did you research it? Actually, uh, is the question. I interviewed the director. <laughs> okay. So do we all need to individually go and interview a director or Google what does this mean to – because I, the only reason I could answer your question, Greg, was because I immediately came home and Googled – Okay, what does after sun mean? Uh, in fairness, I had a theory what I thought and I put that theory to her during the interview and she said, yes, that's what it was. Very good. So, yes, okay. We, 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 we'll, we'll have to speak to Dave off air. So, uh, right, we, we, Jackie, score out of 10. Oh, you're going to hate me. No, you're going to fail it. I know that, but go for it. I gave it a three. <laughs> O-M-G. All right. Good. Okay. Well, let's let's move from there to Chris. Oh, that's three out of ten, by the way, not three out of five. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's move to Creed 3 on Jair 88FM. This is 116 minutes, M rated. And after retiring from the ring three years ago, Adonis Creed, played by Michael B. Jordan, lives to fight another day. Of course he does. And... Well, the film starts back in the day when Creed, Thaddeus James Mixon Jr., aged 15, was running around with his best friend, an 18-year-old called Damian Anderson, played by Spence Moore II, who at that time was a boxing prodigy. Then a violent incident served to separate the pair. Of course, as we found out in earlier instalments of the Creed franchise, which followed on from the Rocky franchise, Creed would go on to become the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. And he's now married to a singer, uh, now a producer called Bianca, played by Tessa Thompson, who I really liked. The the pair has a smart young daughter called Amara, played by Miller Davis-Kent. And life seems to be pretty good for all concerned. Creed's operating a boxing academy, managing a world champion called Felix Chavez, played by Jose Benavidez. And, well, Felix Chavez is a bit of a hothead who's looking for his next fight, a title defence against a man mountain called Victor Drago. Remember that from the Rocky franchise, played by Florian Montagnier. And then who should show up unexpectedly? None other than Damien Anderson, played by Jonathan Majors, who has just been released from prison after spending 18 years inside. And despite his ageing years, Anderson's still looking for a title shot. Yeah, he was the boxing prodigy, if you recall from what I mentioned a few moments ago. He prevails upon Creed, who appears to have abandoned Anderson after he was sent to the slammer. Although Creed tries to help Anderson, the former's equilibrium has clearly been thrown, and before this is over, it'll be thrown even more. And there's another threat, of course, as well, involving Creed's mother, Mary Ann, her serious health concern, Mary Ann played by Felicia Richard, who was um, the uh, Bill Cosby's wife, was she, was she not in in the Cosby series? I I did like the setup. Uh, it's it, by the way, it's directed by Michael B. Jordan, the movie as well, so he stars and directs. I, I thought the contention was engaging, as was the family dynamic. 
first half then moved along at pace, drew me in, established the main players and what was going down. It, at that point, it wasn't clear where the plot trajectory was headed. And, and I really appreciated that. I thought that's that's terrific. But then after a twist, I was let down by the by the numbers back end. There was nothing surprising about the run home. In fact, the predictability of it was disappointing, especially so given the momentum that had been built up earlier, Greg. Did you not think that? Uh, I, I thought it was pretty predictable and pretty cliched all the way through, Alex. Oh, um, there was... Look, and this is the third film in the Clock Creed um, series, which is a spin-off of the Rocky films there. Now, when it comes to third films in a series, you've got films like um, Rocky Three or um, Indiana yeah. Jones and The Last Crusade, which are fine, and, but for every one of those, you get a half a dozen Godfather Part Three, which yeah, are all Godfather, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but I thought... Okay, I went along, and Michael Jordan's direction is fine, I thought, here. He's got a good visual style there. There's some nicely choreographed fight sequences there. And I thought some of the imagery used during that climactic fight scene was quite interesting there and gave insight into um, sort of Creed's insights, um, thoughts on that there. Um, Jonathan Majors is becoming typecast as the villainous type now after this and Ant-Man. Well, Greg, he wouldn't mind a role that's a bit different. <laughs> yeah. Did, yeah. And, and I, I didn't like the rap influence soundtrack. It was a bit too aggressive and in your face for me. I, I'm not a big fan of rap music, and this just added a sort of another level of anger and aggression to the movie. Michael B. Jordan is quite charismatic. I think he does a good job. I like the dynamic between him and his wife and his daughter there. It gave a bit more uh, human, humanity to the, um, the situation there. But, yeah, it was a little bit cliched and a little bit predictable where it was headed and the word go. Mm. Oh, okay. Um, Dave, what did you think of Creed 3? Yeah, look, I enjoyed the first half, and then I thought the second half was just a, an absolute massive letdown. Like you said, after the twist, mm. um, you have one character threatening to destroy someone's family, take their career, take their house, and doesn't go through with any of them. Um, it just became a really bland film in that second half. The only thing that kind of saved it was Michael B. Jordan being a little bit creative with some of the directional and and his cinematographer helping him out in that department as well in the second half with some of the fight sequences. But I just, I can't stand a movie when the the villain makes all these threats and then doesn't see it through. I, I spent the whole night um, leaving the cinema and going home with one of my co-hosts and we basically rewrote the second half of the film on how <laughs> we would have liked to have done it if we were writing it um, in the car on the way home. So, yeah, just a really bland, predictable second half of the film that just let it down. Mm. And and uh, the great sporting aficionado amongst our, our team, as uh, I haven't spoken to yet, uh, Peter Krauss, uh, you know, you're into boxing, yeah, huh? Uh, Boxing Helena. Uh, Well, anyway, this (laughs) Creed 3 is uh, a by-the-numbers film. Three writers couldn't come up with a better plot. Uh, And what disappointed me greatly is that even the fight sequences were not terribly well filmed, I thought. Sorry, uh, three writers. I I thought there was two. There was Keenan Kugler, who was responsible for Space Jam and New Legacy, and Zach Balin, King Richard, who was the third writer. Ryan Kugler. Did Ryan actually write part of this? Yep. Did he really? I, I, when I looked, I didn't see his name there, but there we go. Okay. 
Okay, so uh, if you've seen uh, such great films as Raging Bull and The Fighter and some other films that yeah. have dealt with boxing sequences much better, then uh, this film pales in comparison. I was actually quite bored by this film because I could see the mm. by-the-numbers cliched filmmaking from the start, the story. It just didn't uh, interest me one bit. And uh, I, in fact, the only thing that interested me was the deaf daughter. Uh, I thought a million dollar baby is coming up here, maybe. But mm. apart from that, uh, this this was a washout of a film. I wasn't well, impressed. Yeah, I mean, she, she was cute and feisty, um, you know, Miller Davis Kent, but it was, yeah, it, it was, it didn't have the depth that, uh, that, yeah, it, it, it would have been nice to have had a bit more, more of, but she was fine. I mean, I didn't think the performances were bad. I thought Tessa Thompson was terrific. Um, you know, very, very, you know, and it, Michael B. Jordan. It wasn't. This wasn't about the acting. It was rather about the script. So, okay, let's quickly get get uh, rid of this one in terms of scores. Peter, you start. Four out of ten. Four out of ten for Creed. That's a fail. Greg. Uh, six out of ten. That's my middle ground. Yep. Fair enough, Dave. Yeah, six out of ten for me as well. Yeah, and six and a half for me. And Jackie, you chose not to see it. Yes, I go out and do the boxing for myself. Yeah, very good. Of course you do. Yeah, you do. Um, J- Jackie is just this. J- I reckon you, you. We should rename you Adonis because I mean, you know, you, you're doing back to back to back classes regularly. So um, yeah, she's she's fighting fit, which is great. So that's Creed Three on J Air eighty eight FM. Now we we don't have a lot of time, but I wanted to spend a, a few moments on the Mousetrap because I I referred to it last week and it's on at the Comedy Theatre. This is Agatha Christie's Mousetrap. Opened in London's West End on the 25th of November, 1952. Wow. And it's been running continuously, save for the COVID lockdown, ever since. Fast approaching 30,000 performances. Wow. I mean, it really is making it by far the longest running show of any type in the modern era. The play is also known for its twist ending. And we're asked, we, the audience, are asked not to reveal who done it upon leaving the theatre. And I was actually thinking it'd be nice to have different endings so that you go back and you don't know what happens. But anyway, the play's also uh, sort of um, one of these things that began life as a short radio play broadcast. Uh, it was called Three Blind Mice in honour of Queen Mary, who was the consort to King George V. And it was first broadcast on 30th of May 1947. And it uh, actually had its origins in the real-life case of a boy called Dennis O'Neill, who died while in the foster care of a Shropshire farmer and his wife in 1945. So uh, it's set in 1952 in a British home converted into a guest house by a young couple, Molly and Giles Ralston, played by Anna O'Byrne and Alex Rathgerber, concerning the interaction of them with their five guests and a police sergeant. And he, the sergeant, Detective Sergeant Trotter, played by Tom Conroy, arrives in the wake of a murder in London. And we hear about the killing on the radio as Mrs. Ralston prepares for the arrival of their first guests. That's despite despite blizzard conditions outside, snow is falling heavily. Before interval, the tentacles of the murder in the British capital will be felt 30 miles away, because this is UK, uh, in, in, in the guest house, which is snowed in. Inside that stately home, the finger of blame is being pointed. No one is beyond suspicion. So I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the mousetrap from the get-go, from when the characters were introduced. The Ralstons were only married a year earlier, and as the guests arrive, we gain some insight into their character traits. Childish, combative, authoritarian, insular, questioning, you know, each of those different traits. 
And the mousetrap combines old world charm with good humour and a cracking whodunit plot. Who doesn't like that? Dramatic incident occurs just before interval to set up the second half interrogation. Each character is quizzed and, of course, pleads innocent. Thought the performances were really strong. Anna O'Byrne sets the scene by fussing over detail. Alex Rathgerber arrives to assist with final preparations for the Ralston's first intake of guests. And then Lawrence Boxall is a scene stealer as this nervous prankster and architecture student, Christopher Wren. Jerry Connolly is here. Yep, lively, cheeky, provocative as Mr. Paravicini. Geraldine Turner presents a stern, argumentative visage as a former magistrate, Mrs. Boyle. Charlotte Friels is secretive as Miss Casewell. Adam Murphy brings a stiff upper lip quality to Major Metcalf. Tom Conroy is all business as the good sergeant who arrives on skis to solve the mystery. I really appreciated the set design, which is traditionally, and was distinguished by traditional wood panelling, stained glass windows and armchairs as well, enhanced by the lighting. In other words, attention to detail served to heighten what I thought was a really positive experience. Direction by none other than Robin Nevin. No wonder it's flawless. Terrific. Really, really good. Not hard to see why Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap has well and truly passed the test of time. It's steeped in nostalgia, remains intriguing and a piece of theatrical excellence. 70th anniversary production, playing at the Comedy Theatre until the 26th of March. So, yep, Comedy Theatre. I, re- I, I, I said to my wife, oh, we, we just saw this one a few years ago. I looked back, it was 11 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, I saw the 60th anniversary production. So um, I hope I'm around for the 100th. That'd be nice. You know, and I hope the mousetrap is still uh, still going uh, at that time. Who knows? But um, there, there was quite a bit of enthusiasm, which I thought was terrific for the opening night. There we go. That is it, folks. Thank you very much for tuning in to First on Film and Entertainment. We will do it all again in seven days' time. And keep listening to... Jay Air. Have a good week, folks. Bye for now.